Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. So on the Paracast, we have not done very much about remote viewing. We did a show about it, what, a couple of years ago, David, I think. Back towards the beginning. Yes, and we haven't explored it since, but then someone joined our forums, who turns out is someone who claims to have an awful lot of experience with remote viewing. And his name is Daz Smith, or Daryl Smith, but everybody calls him Daz, and he's given us permission to refer to him by his nickname, so we'll do that. And I think the most important thing to ask is, Daz, how, amongst all the things one could have done, did you get involved with remote viewing? <laughs> well, first, it's good to see you guys. Um, remote viewing, yeah, I kind of stumbled into it, really. Um, my main interest for uh, a lot of years was... Uh, looking into uh, UFOs and, and aliens, all that kind of stuff. And one day at a conference here in the UK, up in Leeds, in 1992, I heard a taped conversation, illegally done, I, I may add, over the telephone, between uh, an unknown person in the US and a UFO investigator in the UK. And this unknown guy in the US was talking about how they were using psychic techniques to spy on on government projects and alien bases and all kinds of things. So my interest was piqued from that from that time onwards, really. And you know, I just had to I, had, I just had to find what remote viewing was and and learn it. But the important and, point here is, does that you took it seriously when you heard this? All my life, I've been training in psychic studies. Anyway, uh, up until this point, I'd I'd spent from the age of fifteen onwards learning all the classical psychic techniques. So I, I had a, a basis of knowledge of all this kind of stuff anyway. I'd learned clairvoyance, mediumship, healing, and pretty much anything else I could get my hands on at the time. But I was always searching for something better. It, it never took me in the right direction. With, with the classical psychic techniques, you never really have any control. You're a bit like a passenger in the car looking out a window. Well, now, help us understand something here. Um, you say that you were involved with these paranormal topics from an early age. I mean, how did that happen? Were your parents interested in this stuff? Yes, I was. I was quite lucky, really. Um, this kind of thing was was accepted in my household um, because my mother had grown up with it as well. Uh, I, I guess it had come right down through the family line, and because she was very interested in it, she uh, she signed everyone up at the time to a spiritualist church. And we just we just grew up with, with this kind of topic being acceptable around the, the dinner table, really. Hmm. And just out of curiosity, did your parents, besides having an interest in this, uh, did your mother or father have any uh, psychic abilities that they or other other people might have identified? Yes, my mother did. She she did pretty well um, at her psychic abilities, and she ran the local spiritualist church for a number of years and she was a she was a trained healer uh, and did mediumship and clairvoyance herself so yeah I kind of like you, you know it just came down the family line to me really do you have brothers and sisters I do and they they also through their through their lifetime have had small random psychic events nothing nothing major though and and they themselves or my father have have not had any interest in pursuing it any further just just me really mm-hmm and, and I'm just curious about this, uh, primarily because of the fact that, and I think I mentioned this on the show, I think I mentioned it on the show, uh, if not, I'll mention it now, but my mother had some very interesting, what would appear to be psychic abilities, that she didn't seem very 
capable of handling much of the time. It really seems to sort of overwhelm her. So I'm wondering, you know, what sort of manifestations of psychic abilities did your mother show at home? And what was the, you know, how did she handle that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, at first, she had, like, like the normal people get, you know, you, you have random things happen. You may hear a bump or, you know, from a room above or something's moved. I, I do remember, because she was going through a lot of early stage stuff, trying to learn spiritualism and stuff. Bearing in mind here, I'm thinking back to when I was very young here. Yeah. Um, I, do, I do remember the house did have quite a lot of poltergeist activity at the time, and I think that's one of the things that made her find spiritualists and start asking questions and then obviously, you know, develop what was going on. And how did she go about developing that? I, I think for a lot of people, when they hear this kind of stuff, obviously, does you, you've, you've listened to the show, so you sort of know our attitude about these things where, uh, you know, we, we try to balance that line between being, you know, highly skeptical and at the same time open-minded. And sometimes that's a hard thing to do. Uh, I, I guess I don't have to state that. People who listen to the show know that. But, uh, you know, we're trying to approach you with a very open mind here because we're really interested in this topic. But I think it's important that people, you know, get details about growing up around this kind of stuff. Because I think that it's very different to, to be suggested, subjected to these things, these phenomena at an early age, versus taking an interest in them later on, kind of almost as a, as a hobby thing or as a source of entertainment. What you're saying basically is that you grew up in an environment where these things were... were made acceptable to you. Now, understand that the more skeptical listeners would then say, well, it's almost as if you had a predisposition to want to believe. How would you How would you, you respond to that? It's possible. I mean, you know, that's, that's a fair point. People can say that. I don't think it's a case of belief, though, because, you know, at times in my past, I've even questioned myself when I'm, you know, when I'm involved in experiments and, and doing bits and pieces for remote viewing. And even more so, with the classical psychic training and the classical psychic stuff like mediumship and clairvoyance, because of the way they're they're structured, they allow a lot of influences that that could be at play other than uh, it being psychic effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you differentiate then between something that it would be considered legitimate or genuine? For example, right, you brought up poltergeist activity. Now, this is a really, it's an interesting topic, one we haven't talked enough about on the show. But uh, I, I know in the reading that I'm doing about it, and I'm reading a few different books about this all at once, there, there seems to be this uh, this potential of some amount of what is considered classical poltergeist activity actually being um, some sort of telekinetic projection from people in the environment, and, and sometimes there are things that appear to be some combination of both. You know, we, we often hear about in a situation where we're a poltergeist, you know, a, a, a teenage girl very often, uh, more so than a teenage boy, and, and, and she will be a sort of a focal point for the activity. And there are some suggestions that then what is really being seen is some form of telekinesis on the part of the person who seems to be the focal point of the activity. So... In talking about this topic, how do you differentiate? Are there are there techniques to differentiate between what might be some truly externally sourced thing versus some sort of unknown? And, and again, you know, it's important to state that if it is telekine telekinesis of some sort, that also is is pretty unknown at this point. Is there are there any techniques or methodologies to differentiate between the two types of things? You understand what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. Not so, it's not so easy with 
the classical psychic stuff or paranormal things or topics like you're talking about, you know, like like the poltergeist activity. And I, I have to agree with you that some of the influence in poltergeist activity, bearing in mind I'm not an expert on this, um, right. does right. does seem to originate from the people observing the effects as well. And that goes through the whole gamut of, of all paranormal stuff, really. The observers become part of the experiments. R- remote viewing, in the way it's structured, is, is, is structured uh, around some pretty rigid rules, which we call protocols and the structure of remote viewing itself. It, it's, it's structured in such a way that it tries to stop all those other things being an influence so that we can try to evaluate whether there's real psychic data or not. How does one train in psychic techniques? Let's let's step back again, because um, you say that you, you had spent some amount of your, your, your life training in, in, in things like, for example, mediumship. Now, I can tell you that as someone who teaches people how to be creative with all sorts of interesting digital tools and techniques, you can certainly teach people techniques. You can, you, you can take an, an, an existing talent and nurture it. It's, it's very, very difficult to teach someone how to be an artist if if it ain't there. So yes. is it the same kind of thing we're talking about with these topics? It is, yes, and that that definitely includes um, remote viewing. I mean, there you know, with all these uh, kind of paranormal subjects, there needs to be at least a small grain of talent there. Otherwise, it, uh, we use the analogy of like playing the piano. I mean, mm-hmm. after a certain amount of training of any kind, you could teach pretty much anyone to do chopsticks on a piano. But if you want them to do more like Beethoven or something, you know, there would need to be a small amount of natural talent involved. I was actually thinking of Rachmaninoff, but... <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, Specifically, let me put a question on the table here, Daz. And that is, do you think that everybody has some sort of psychic ability that can be enhanced or is it really just a select few people maybe in your case it's a genetic thing because you grew up in a family with psychics yes um i believe that everyone has a small amount of you know psychic ability some people have a little bit more than others um and you know i, I totally believe that one day we'll be able to prove that there's nothing actual paranormal or strange in this at all i truly believe that we will find the answers to what all this psychic ability is within quantum physics and you know theories like the holographic universe. You know, one of the issues, and I, I, I kind of intimated this before, um, where you know I grew up in a household where my mother seemed to have some abilities, but later in life I started to to think that perhaps these abilities ended up uh, affecting her mental health and not in a positive way. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I, I wonder if human beings in their current state of evolution are ready to to take on the responsibility of, you know, those kinds of abilities. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one as well. I mean, it's, it's you know, psychic abilities aren't aren't a new you know phenomenon for for humans really. You know, I, I think what what we're seeing is a is a possible throwback to to you know caveman times or or somewhere around that time you know where when it, it was used as a, a defense mechanism you know a way to go by your instinct to to try and find the next patch of available food that kind of thing mm-hmm. um but you know like like everything in life there are people that aren't good at doing certain things you know there are people susceptible to, to alcohol or drugs 
it's it's the same with you know, anything paranormal, really. You know, if someone does have a slightly bad mental disposition, they can take things too far or too wrongly, in, and it can have negative effects. Daz, I understand what you're saying, but what I'm wondering is, is it a possibility that if someone, let's say, is completely mentally healthy, all right, which I don't think anybody in the earth actually is, but let's just assume that for a moment, is it a possibility that then a recognition or a realization that one has some psychic abilities, is that enough to basically send somebody over the edge, in your opinion? Um, that's a hard question. Um, not being a psychologist, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to absolutely say, but I say it could be possible. Well, I guess in, you know, looking at, you talked about how you grew up being trained in, the, in these different kinds of, of techniques, right? So uh, do you think that even a recognition of having some innate ability in these areas affects your overall, I don't want to say mental outlook or mental health, but let's just say mental health. I mean, do you think that, because I think for a lot of people, when they hear about these topics, they kind of, you know, there's an automatic curtain of laughter that descends where people say, oh, you know, look at this stuff you believe, and that's kind of goofy. And there is this, this supposition that even being interested in these things is almost like a sign of, uh, you know, a little bit of mental chaos. Well, so, you, you know, looking at your level of interest in this, and this is going to sound like a kind of an abrupt question, but would you consider yourself to be someone who is sane? Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I'm, you know, and well, that I'm, makes one of us here. <laughs> I'm critical myself over everything I, I get involved with. You know, every experiment that I'm involved with, I want to know the ins and outs. You know, I want to know are there ways that you know are we missing something? Is there some is there some way that I could be reading information or getting information from another source that's not psychic? You know, I'm one of the people. You know, I do I do question everything around me. That, that, that gets done within remote, you know, within remote viewing. Are you ready to order the official Paracast T-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast T-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back, it says "Separating." Signal from noise. It's just fourteen ninety five plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast T-shirt, here's all you have to do: visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time: that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast T-shirt. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com.
entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Daz Smith, and he is someone who says he has psychic abilities and also is trained and experienced with remote viewing. Now, remote viewing is something that we've heard about in connection with alleged experiments by the U.S. government in remote viewing ways, I guess, to spy upon the Russians back during the Cold War without actually having to send a spy out there. They just sit in a room and they see what's going on. So is that fundamentally, does what remote viewing is all about, that you can see an event taking place at that point in time somewhere else? Uh, yes, it is. I mean, the, the official kind of definition of remote viewing is that it's a skill uh, by which a person, who we call a remote viewer or a viewer, uh, they, can, they can then perceive objects, persons, or events at any location removed from themselves, uh, either by space or time. So we can go anywhere in time and space and get any information that we deem that we need to get. Now, you just introduced an interesting concept there, anywhere in time. Yes. I mean, you know, a lot of the targets and projects I've done are in the past. Uh, we also do present ones, and we also do predictive ones. But the predictive ones are the ones that are the least accurate. Why do you suppose that's the case? I don't know. No one really knows. You know, uh, I've looked into the the work that the CIA did with in, within the Stargate program, uh, SRI and SAIC for the the twenty years they looked at it, and they themselves tried. They ran hundreds of tests trying to run these projects on predictive situations, and they themselves couldn't, couldn't find the answer to why it was going awry and. I, I really don't know. You know, we hear all kinds of theories from multiple realities, string theory, and everything. We just don't. No one really knows. So, define a SRI, Stanford Research Institute. Is that correct? Uh, SRI, yes, yes. What, what was the other one you mentioned? SAIC. Uh, they took off the project uh, after SRI finished. It ran about, I think, 1986, 1987. What does it stand for, though? Oh, that's actually eluded me at the moment, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's only it because was, you're on the radio, Daz. You have to just... Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the problem with remote viewing is, and, and I'm a bit of a history buff on remote viewing as well, The it's it's got so many four-letter acronyms, you know, um, that they extend right through its entire history because, you know, it was, it was started by the CIA, it was then taken over by the DIA, it was run out of SRI, and then went to... SAIC. So there's a lot of acronyms that I have to remember over the years, especially, you know, project names and all kinds of stuff that it, it starts to get a bit confusing sometimes. I think right. it stands for, uh, it's a big corporation. I think it's something like Science Applications International Corporation. All right. We'll look that up after the fact. No problem. There's another yeah. point. There's another point I wanted to just jump in and interrupt Shoot. for a second. Okay. Now, we've heard all these stories about the research that was done, especially during the 1980s. But yes. how do we know it's true? We haven't heard all these stories. We, we've heard all okay. these stories. Well, we've heard well, a few of them. I can give you an overview if you want. I mean, okay. it's, it, it would be... 
it's very easy to get this information. The, the CIA actually released, through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, 90% of its material that anyone can get, you know, by applying to them, or you can actually buy it from various places online. Um, and it comprises of tens of thousands of documents uh, covering the entire 25-year history of, of all the projects that they worked. You know, it's pretty much a fact. It's, you know, the documents are there. I'm, I, I consider myself a bit of a buff in the fact that I've actually read most of the documentation in the files. And I think it in total, I think it totaled, eight, well, it did total 89,901 pages. Hmm. And that covered so, a 25-year so, history and to the tune of approximately $22 million. So let's talk about that history, Dawes. You, you say you're a history buff about this stuff. Okay, how did this get started? Who started it? Why was it started? Okay, uh, the entire program started... Uh, in 1972, the uh, CIA started getting some some rumors and some some information that uh, the Russians were engaging in psychic research, uh, taking it seriously, and maybe even moving to a new direction of using psychics to affect people. So what they did is they looked in house to agencies and, and places that were doing government-sponsored research, and they found that SRI was doing quite a lot of research for them back then. So they approached some people at SRI to look at the possibility of, you know, doing some pretty basic work to see if there was anything to this psychic phenomenon. And at the time, they went to a guy called Hal Putoff, and they, I think they gave him something like $30,000 to run an initial one, one to two month experiment just to see if they could pick up any results. At that time, uh, Hal was being talked to by an emerging psychic from New York called Ingo Swan, who, at the age of 39, was started getting into uh, psychic research circles. Um, they swapped letters. Uh, Ingo went out to SRI and ran some tests. Uh, the tests were, am out, you know, were amazing. They, they blew, blew the minds of the people doing the tests and the CIA. And then it kind of snowballed from there, really, and, and carried on for the next 25 years. What were the nature of those tests? If I remember correctly, the first tests were to see if Ingo Swan could look inside a sealed magnetometer, which was a, uh, a magnetically shielded device, a few, uh, you know, underground in a, in a scientific lab, and it was all it was all hooked up and giving readouts and stuff. No one no one thought it would be possible to do, but at the moment that he was you know asked to to look inside the machine. Um, it's all recorded that uh, the output went haywire for a few seconds. So, in other words, he he actually had an effect on the equipment. He did, yes, and it's you know you can you can actually see you know you can go to any remote viewing website or even the books on on the subject, and you can see uh, copies of the actual printout and the statements from the, from all the scientists involved at the time. So, he had an effect on the on the gear. Um, did he then actually also retrieve information about the specifics of the equipment? I mean, it's one thing, of course, to be able he to did, affect yeah. something at a distance, right? But, but it's different to be able to get an impression. Yes, he did. are two different techniques, correct? Yes. I mean, you bear in mind, this was 1972, so it was early. There was, you know, this, they're doing this off by the seat of their pants. They have, you know, they have nothing to go by. Uh, and what he did is he, he had no idea what, what a magnetometer was or what it did. So what he tried to do to look inside it is he tried sketching it on a sheet of paper. 
uh, and as he was trying to sketch it on a sheet of paper, which actually turned out to be quite accurate, um, he actually affected the machine itself. People who seem to have a facility for this, and we're going to come back to the history in a moment, um, is this a thing where they have facility in different paranormal areas? I mean, is Ingo Swan the kind of person who showed any telekinesis abilities before any of this stuff happened? He, uh, he claims in, in his past, you know, like, like most psychics, that they had, you know, the, the random effects, the odd thing happened, dreams come true, that, that kind of thing. Um, I have seen some of Ingo Swan's other research, and he, he does seem to have a wide gamut of being able to do lots of different things uh, with, you know, within the paranormal scope. Not everyone has or can, but he seems to be a person that has a, a wide scope of ability. He's still around, I take it? He's still alive. He is. Right? He is. Yeah, he's in his. Uh, I think he's seventy-three or something. He's in his seventies now. Um, he still participates a little bit in the field, um, not so much as he used to. And he's the person, really, that after all this happened, he's the person that for ten years tried to deconstruct what was happening in, in internally inside of him as a psychic process, and then he reconstructed it as what we now know today as controlled remote viewing as a teachable method of being psychic that the military then went on to use for a number of years. Is the military still actively involved in this area? Allegedly, no. Uh, I do hear rumors that they are, but, you know, we all hear these conspiracy-type rumors. But officially, the the actual unit and project um, completely went public in 1995 and finished. Okay, that's an important point here. Why did they evidently, at least officially, give it up because it didn't provide the results they wanted? Well, looking through the archive documents, it clearly states that one of the ex-scientists involved in the program put in, uh, had actually put in a Freedom of Information Act uh, requesting all documents, including himself and studies. And at the same time, or the remote, viewer and, the remote viewers themselves, who were all military men, were coming to the terms of uh, the end of terms of their uh, their services, so they were starting to seep into the public domain and, and quit anyway. And I think I think to be honest, it shows in the archives that the two combined at the same time made them realise that you know it was all it was all becoming public. There was nothing they could do to stop it. So they went and did it anyway. They went and disclosed to everyone that okay, we'd have the psychic program. This is how it went, but we're not going to do it anymore. Okay, so if I'm a skeptical paracast listener, I, I hear that and I go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. If you have something that theoretically is working, why stop it? Well, it's 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 the giggle factor, isn't it? I mean, as we've discussed, you know, er, earlier in this conversation, some you know there are a lot of people who will laugh and think that anyone involved in anything psychic at all, uh, need, you know, are crazy and need to be carted off, even though you can see scientific results from it. You know what? I'm not going to buy that explanation because in the military, we, we know from the part of the history of certainly the American military that's been declassified that they've been involved in all sorts of questionable things. Um, and if you have a technique that's working, I can't see how the giggle factor, I can't see the military being concerned about external perception. If you have something that's working, that doesn't ring valid to me. Well, I mean, you know, they paid... They paid by hook or crook for the program to carry on for 20 years. And each year, at the end of each year, the program had to go for a system of, uh, of 
proving itself to mm-hmm. the next mm-hmm. set of people on scientific councils to then get funding for another year. It did that for 20 years. Uh, as I said, in the fact that people would request Freedom of Information Act and the fact that all their remote viewers were, were leaving service and setting up their own companies and becoming public anyway, I don't think they had much of a choice other than to become public with it. Because yep. this way they were leaving the program no matter what, is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah. Okay, but yeah. couldn't they put them under security clearances, say, look, you're doing something here that represents national security and you need to sign an agreement and not talk about it? Because, for example, I'll give you another example which maybe doesn't relate to this as much, but in terms of military security does. We're now seeing several employees, very elderly employees, who worked at Area 51 30, 40, 50 years ago, now talking of secret weapons programs there. Now, they did sign confidentiality agreements, but maybe they labor under the assumption that if you're 90 years old, the government is not going to come back and arrest you. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We are talking to Daz Smith, and we're talking about psychic phenomena and remote viewing, but in any case, Daz, you get the point of what I'm saying here, that if absolutely. they're really producing results... You know, they wouldn't just leave the program. It wouldn't be that easy, would it? Well, that's that's essentially what they did. I mean, you know, you can track the history of, of how remote viewing became public. Uh, one of the guys who left the unit, who everyone knows, he's one of the most famous speakers about remote viewing, Ed Danes. He left in in 1992. He's clearly at some of the top UFO conferences talking about the top secret military program, and he's break, he is literally breaking his security oath. He does mention people and projects by names, which at the time was illegal, um, but he got, he got away with it. And then three years later, you know, because more people were becoming public, because the Freedom of Information Act requests were going through by law, they you know the project became public right but it becoming public how does this jive if it becomes public and at the same time is showing results isn't that then giving the military the ability of continuing it with the knowledge that it is becoming public it's out there no one's screaming for blood so okay well if it's becoming public and people aren't freaking out about it and it's producing results because i keep coming back to this producing results bit if it's producing results you know, why would the military be concerned about a, a giggle factor? It, it, it's not, you see what I'm saying? It, it, it doesn't, yeah. logically, well, that doesn't make any sense. 
I mean, all the fun, you know, all all I can all I can offer is is the history of of, of what things, you know, how things happen, and it, it became public. All I can offer is, you know, all the funding for the reviewing projects itself, especially in its later years, uh, came through congressional grants. You know, people people they have to give permission for the money to go to the project and stuff. It's you know, it's very hard when that all then becomes public to then put your name to something like that. As you guys know, you know, we're discussing it here. Well, I think yeah. I wanted to just bring something up because you mentioned one name in the field, Ed Dames. And I have yeah. to say that there are questions about his background that are not very favorable. And listeners who want to know what I'm talking about, if you go to the UFOwatchdog.com, that's UFOwatchdog.com, and you go to the Hall of Shame which is where people who supposedly have done things to denigrate UFO and paranormal research are placed. And there are a lot of things here where he's made predictions that just simply never took place. He claimed to represent, in one case, a police department that he did not represent. So there are concerns about Ed Dames. This is not saying that this applies to everybody who's involved in remote Absolutely. viewing, but in the, that particular case, I have to provide a cautionary note. Absolutely. I mean, as, as I said just now, you know, you can actually see and, and you can actually get audio tapes of some of these UFO conferences online where Ed Dames was a guest. He, you know, I've actually seen his security oath. I have a copy of it signed by him, and he's clearly breaking his security oath in 1992. Is that a genuine security oath? That's the question. Well, well, yes, because it comes, you know, it becomes as part of these CIA documentations. You know, it's all it's all released for the Freedom of Information Act. So you're saying the security oath was not provided by Ed Dames; it's provided by the government who, who, yes. who hands it over. Meanwhile, um, as Gene sort of alluded to, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll play the bad cop here, happily as I usually do on this show, in, in looking into, and I've looked into Ed Dames a little bit, um, you know, uh, I don't think Gene or, my, or, or myself or, or would consider ourselves experts in this topic, but one doesn't have to dig very far in, on the name Ed Dames to come up with uh, the notion that this guy has never really predicted much of anything. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold him up as a credible source of uh, of remote viewing. In fact, you know, some of the, some of his allegations about him being head of the unit, the remote viewing unit, him being a trainer, him being in charge, are completely false. When you when you look into the history of remote viewing and the people that were doing the training at the time, yes, he did get a certain amount of training. Um, but it was only a very, very small level training. He no, no way ran the unit. And as you know, I agree with you guys. You have to look into the facts uh, of Ed Dames's career in the military. You know, military disinformation. It's got to be a play in you know what he's doing now and what he's done since since all this went public. Well, so so you're not disagreeing with the notion that Dames has never really been able to sort of prove any capabilities at all. Um, okay, so in that regard, then who is the antithesis to Dames? Who's the guy who you think is really, really capable? The alleged best remote viewer that ever came out of the military program and still the best remote viewer today is a person called Joe McMoneagle. So tell us about him. He was, I'm not an expert on, on his history. He was, in, he was in the unit from its early days, and then after he retired, he was then rehired by the research branch of the remote viewing side and he worked he worked then in a lab he now still does remote viewing t today um he's got 
an amazing track record of accuracy. Um, a lot of his work is in the Stargate archives and it can be seen. And to date, you know, you can actually see him quite regularly on Japanese TV where he's given targets of missing people. You know, sometimes people that have been missing 20 odd years, he goes away and does his thing, gives them sketches, and you, you can see the, the researchers in the program track down these people that have been missing all these years. He has a very good accuracy rating. But he's not alone, there are others, but he is allegedly the best. All right, so um, what is the protocol for testing someone's abilities? I assume there's some sort of a standardized... I'm assuming this, we're going to make this assumption, but you'll correct us okay. if we're wrong. Um, is there a standardized protocol for testing people's abilities and accuracy? Yes, there is. But, but before that, the remote viewing itself has to have three parts to it before it, so it, for it to be called remote viewing you know we, we try to differentiate remote viewing from, from the plain psychics and the, and the people that claim to be psychic out there mm-hmm. so remote viewing needs three things first whatever you're doing remote viewing wise it has to be planned or aimed so you just kind of have something spontaneous and say right I'm doing remote viewing you have to say right I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get information about a target so it has to be planned number two it has to be at least blind, but more preferably it has to be double blind. So the remote viewer never knows anything about the target. It's all hidden to it. Okay, Sorry. presumably the person who they're, they're interfacing with also knows nothing about the target. That's what you're referring to as double blind, correct? That would be double blind, yes. Sometimes on occasion, you know, because, you know, if you're practicing and stuff, it's hard to get people to practice with. Sometimes, you know, a friend will say, will you do this target for me? And you know you do it, and stuff. so that's that's class just being blind. But you know they're never in the room, the vicinity, or anywhere you know in any way that you're doing it. So at least you're blind, but preferable that you're double blind to it. And the third proponent to being r- remote viewing is you can't do targets unless you have feedback for them. Because if you don't have feedback, if you can't take your psychic information and then take your feedback, video, image, you know, whatever it, whatever it may be, it may be video, it may be images, it may be audio, it may even just be textual stuff. If you don't have that kind of stuff to, to check against the psychic data, you can't see how accurate it is. That's a key to... point here, which we definitely appreciate you making. The fact is you have to have evidence of the remote location, what it really is, so you can compare what the particular reviewer is seeing yes okay and if you don't have any of those three parts it being planned it being blind or double blind or it having feedback then we don't class it as remote viewing it's not called remote viewing i'm a little unclear on that last part um because presumably if you're asking somebody to go to the trouble of doing this then there is some sort of uh, objective information available about what the actual thing is that they're supposed to be looking at you know, otherwise it's all a mood exercise. Um, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of uh, this idea of okay, they're going to go look for something. There's got to be something there to begin with for them to find. Um, yes. So isn't that sort of, isn't that sort of a given though? I mean, let me put it this way. You know, let me turn the question around. Have you ever, either personally or, or, or witnessed a situation where uh, someone has asked to remote view something, and they come back and they go, well, there's nothing there. And, and having that be sort of a test of whether or not they're really actually imaging anything. Yes, because if, if, the, if the target doesn't exist and the remote viewer can't get any information on it, they end up talking about dribble or talking about a complete different target or something. Okay. So that being the case, when, when you say a target, right, are there any issues involving animal, mineral, mineral or vegetable scale 
location? Um, you know, what are what are the normal parameters around that? I guess you, you mentioned that both on the Paracast forums and I think even earlier that you you've done some work trying to help locate people, right? So there's a situation where okay, you, you've got a person that you're searching for, but does, yes. theoretically, does remote viewing work better? Let's say trying to track a person versus an object. It depends on the remote viewer, really. Um, whatever they have learned through their their life skills through their life, you know, uh, comes in comes into play into remote viewing skills. Some people are better at, you know, if you're an architect, maybe, you know, and you've looked at buildings all your life, there might be a predisposition to you being better at looking at buildings and structures than a doctor, and a doctor might be better at looking for people than they might be looking at structures you know it's different for uh, for everyone and it just depends on on your life skills before mm. we cover other life skills Fake magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue that's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Daz Smith joining us on the Paracast. We're talking about remote viewing. Now, we have been discussing the background of remote viewing. But this is something you say you've been able to do yourself. What kind of level of accuracy have you been able to achieve? If anyone ever tells you as a remote viewer that, that you know they're 100% accurate, then you you know from the start that it's a it's a complete lie, and there's someone to be you know to watch out for. Remote viewing will never be 100% accurate. It's because the whole of the body and the mind is at play in remote viewing and there are so many things that can affect a viewer on a day-to-day basis and and make them go off track a little bit on the odd occasion you know i I would say one one to two times out of ten i get very very good results which i would class it something like 90 to 100 percent accurate the rest of the time i would claim to be 60 to 80 percent accurate but even i have bad days you know i can have a bad day whereas you know, I just don't hit the target at all. That's the thing that concerns me about remote viewing, which is the accuracy, the overall accuracy you can achieve. And the reason is, you'd think, based on the concept of remote viewing, it's almost akin to saying, okay, in my mind, I'm going to put my own mental camera in the place that I'm viewing, and I'll tell you what I see, or hear, or whatever. But obviously, it's not that good, is it? It is on occasion, as I said, you have to bear in mind that we're, we're talking about human beings here. You know, an athlete can have good and bad days. There, there will be days when they can beat their personal best. They can go out the very next day onto the track and they can't do anything at all. You know, they may have a hamstring in, 
injury or anything. It's the same with remote viewers. You know, if you had an argument with your wife an hour before you meant to be doing a remote viewing session, it might have an effect on your mind. It might be a distraction for you. Or if you've got a bad back or slept funny, again, that might be a distraction. Hmm. So with that in mind, is there a certain psychological profile person uh, forgetting any kind of innate uh, psychic abilities potentially, is there a certain type of person that is better suited to this than another person? Not if you listen to or or read the uh, the official Stargate archives, where you know where the documents talk about how many people they tested and what they looked for. Personally, though, I've seen that people that are more artistic and creative find it to be an easier process to do. But that's my personal opinion. So does that have something to do with visualization capabilities then? I guess that would be I, a yes. I believe so, yes, because I, I, be- I, I believe that the remote viewing process is a creative process. So let's then talk about um, the process of, of teaching or learning this. What are the kinds of things that you seek to accomplish with those techniques? What are, what are the specifics of the techniques. I mean, I can tell you what's involved with teaching someone, for example, how to use a piece of software where you uh, you give them certain types of background information about the genre that the software lives inside of. Um, maybe you give them a little bit of history. Um, you, you teach them how to sort of um, look and recognize things like proper composition and, and color matching and color mixing. Um, and, and a lot of what ends up happening, let's say, for the realm of design is to learn by example, uh, where you study, let's say, successful design and bad design, and that helps you determine where your own tendencies are going to lean toward. How, do, how does this work in the area of remote viewing? How, how, what is the training process like? For, for the method I learned in remote viewing, and there, there are many out there on the market at the moment, the method I learned was CRV, which is short for Controlled Remote Viewing. And it, the method I've learned is the military variant that they used at the time. And the techniques you just described are the exact techniques I had to learn uh, in, in the process of learning how to remote view. Not all remote viewing techniques are like that. There are people that kind of what we call freestyle remote viewing so they're they claim to you know to just new psychic techniques and then and they tr- try to learn this method uh, pretty much on the fly as as they develop but no the what you described is 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 exactly the way i was taught how to remote view uh and it all comes from the crv training manual and the methods that Ingo Swan created way back in the 80s that he taught to the military unit they then taught to themselves and now those ex-military people were out in the field in, in public domain teaching others in the exact same way they were taught way back then so let's get a little more specific though because I think people who again are approaching this from a skeptical point of view say wait a minute there's a way to learn this How do you? what is the structure of that learning process specifically, that leads you down a path of being able to acquire knowledge in this area. You, you know, I, I, so are we talking about meditation? Are we talking about breathing exercises? Like, what kinds of things? I mean, how do you, uh, and I'm asking this because I honestly don't understand. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, meditation helps. It's not it's not a part of, of learning remote viewing, but I All personally right. have found over the years that 
the the more practice I become at being able to calm my mind through meditation, mm-hmm. the easier and better results I get through remote viewing. Uh, but the remote viewing process itself that I was taught is a is a which is CRV is a six stage process, and there there are six stages one to six. Each one of these builds on the stage before. So stage one, you get like a quick snapshot of the target. And then stage two, you build on that, get sensory information. Stage three, you start sketching it. Stage four, you go in, into in-depth, trying to analyze the target. Stage five, you look a bit at your information to see if you've missed anything. Stage six, you then do advanced sketches and maybe even model the target with modeling K if you have some available or any other material you feel necessary. That's my, that's my process of remote viewing. And when I was taught how to remote view, I was taken aside by my teacher and we went through each stage. So I would, I would try to learn stage one for a few weeks, going back and forth, repetition of targets just to get stage one down pat. And then once he felt that I developed enough, I then moved on and learned stage two. And then after a few weeks doing that, it was stage three and, and so on. Not all schools uh, teach it in that way, but that's, that's the way I was taught. And, you know, even after doing all that time doing that, I still consider myself a novice. And I've then gone away and spent the next 13 years working on this on my own and with teams, trying to develop it myself further. All right, I got a facetious question. Some people might think it's facetious, so I'll do it. I'll do this with a with a Jewish voice. Ready? So, with this, you earn a living. What do you do? How do you make a living with this? Well, <laughs> I don't. I've, okay. All right. In thirteen years, I've only charged three times, and that's been in the last four months. And those those people I have charged, they've come to me through a website. Uh, under the proviso that I'll, I'll do everything and I'll foot the bill up front for me and a team of people to look at this project for them. And if they if they don't like any of the information I provide to them afterwards or do not feel as accurate, then they do not have to pay and they can keep all the information. So how do you survive? Uh, my day-to-day, this isn't my day-to-day job. My day-to-day job is a is a uh, an artist stroke web designer. Okay. All right. Which is okay. creative. That's why I feel creative process is it seems to be a symbiosis with remote viewing. Well, not to be silly again and not to sound facetious again, uh, but knowing something about the graphic design and web world, I'm going to do the voice again. So, but does you make a living? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's uh, it's very competitive out there in this field. Now, again, I don't want to derail the conversation, but uh, it definitely seems like you haven't chosen an easy path, young Jedi. No, it's... Uh... It's hard, but I've I've been addicted to the internet since uh, around about the same time as remote viewing, actually, around about 1996. And uh, I have ha- I have opened up and run for a number of years a couple of uh, entrepreneurial companies using the internet and stuff with serious amounts of funding. You know, when when the dot com boom was available in the yeah. in 97, you know, I I managed at the time to get some serious funding then for an opportunity that ran for a good eight years and, and only recently closed so yeah so I'm back web designing again um, which, which is okay it, it makes a living it's not a good one but it, it just about makes one mm. I have never do, I've never done a psychic reading for anyone I would never do that I'd never ch- I, you know I've never 
charged for anything that's like classed as being humanitarian. And in the last 18 months alone, I've done around about 45 cases now for, Uni for the United States Police Forces looking for, for missing people and not charged a penny for all the time I put in for that. I notice on your website you do have lots of links in regard to remote viewing where you can take a look at the actual CRV training manual from the military where you can also look at remote viewing sessions featuring yes. people like Paul Smith and I believe Paul Smith is a gentleman who was on our show what, about yeah. two years ago, David? Yeah, right. very early on in the history of the show. So now yeah. we have his results. That's correct, yeah. I mean, the, the great thing about the... Uh, the CIA Freedom of Information release was that anyone, if you want to spend the time, can go through the documents and you can have a look at on a month-by-month -month basis at any of the uh, the remote viewers at the time, and you can have a look at their accuracy ratings, what targets they trained with, and anything. It's all there available for you to see. The United States got its lead uh, from what the Russians were doing. Uh, to your knowledge. Does. Are the Russians still involved with this field? I hear rumors that they are, but again, it's you know it's like all the conspiracy stuff online. It's very hard to validate. I don't think they are. I don't think they have the money, or if they do have the money and they're doing it, it's, it's very quiet. The Chinese seem to be doing a lot. We hear quite a lot about research going on down there, um, but not so much from the Russians anymore. What about other governments, other European governments? Well, the uh, I think a year and a half ago, the UK MOD, where I am here, they released a, a file they did on remote viewing. They saw that everyone was talking about it on the internet and decided to run a test of their own. You know, they put their, all their data online a year and a half ago. They didn't get very good results, but bear in mind, you know, when you read the report, they couldn't actually get any remote viewers to work on the project, so they just picked some people off the street. Um, but with those people they picked off the street, they did get 30% accuracy. That's a good well, point, too. 30% accuracy. Is that any better than just guessing a chance, taking a chance? I mean, if I sat here and I said, okay, this is such and such, 20 miles away, the particular target that I'm supposed to view, and what chance would I have of getting it correct? Well, it's, it's hard to say, because how would we discern whether you were using psychic information or, or not? You know, just guessing, which guessing. is the point, yeah. You know, even if you think you're just guessing, are you just guessing? Well, at some point, at you some have point. to sort of make certain types of you know, the statements about black or white with this stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. obviously, it's, it's very hard to categorize things in the world without having certain yardsticks. If you have a look at the remote viewing examples from you know from the guys in the military unit or even the ones on my website, you can quite clearly see in in you know in the remote viewing sessions there the sketches and the data do match the targets very well because it's not we don't you know as remote viewers we don't just get we don't sit there and just get you know oh I think it's going to be grey or I think the target is round this kind of thing we do get data like that as well but we also you know we also sketch the target you know we can cue ourselves to say okay I'm not really getting what I want from here I'll move 150 feet above the target and then draw you a new sketch so we can get some very very detailed information let's get back to techniques here for a minute though because again I think in the interest of disclosure uh, people want to understand, certainly anybody listening to the Paracast probably wants to get a better handle on what the process involves. And let's assume for a moment, and this is sometimes hard to do, but assume that people who are listening to the show 
don't really know anything about the topic. I think that's probably a safe assumption. And certainly for those who do, that's great. But for those who don't, what sort of process do you go through to remote view something? I mean, what what are the specific steps involved? Okay. This is generally how it works for me um, because I do a lot of targets for for people that I've met over the years. Someone will email me and they'll say, I have a project that needs doing. Would you be prepared to look at it? And I'll, you know, I'll most often than not say yes. Mm-hmm. But they'll then come back to me because because we've worked out this out in, in in advance. They know, they know the procedures I work with. We've been removing. They'll then come back to me and they'll say, okay, the target number for you to concentrate on is XXX, and then they'll give me a random number. It doesn't matter what it is. It it's just a bit of it's just a bit of information for me to focus upon, really. And in fact, you know, it's just good as a reference tool right at the top of the document so we all know what project we're talking about. So they'll come back with a random number and say, your target is XXX, Y, Y, Y. But they may have wrote down on a sheet of paper as feedback to give to me later. They might have a photograph of what the target is. They might write down, I want Daz to look inside this house to tell me what it's like. You know, It could be something simple as that. So they'll just write that down on a sheet of paper, but I won't get to see that until I finish. So they'll give me this random number. I'll sit down at home at some point in the future uh, with that random number and a big stack of white paper and a pen. I'll just have a quick 10-minute meditation to myself to calm my mind because, you know, a lot happens in the day and you don't want that getting in the way. I'll stick on some music, some classical music, and then I'll sit down and then I'll, I'll just... I won't be in any kind of meditative state, altered state, or doing anything strange. I'll just sit there with a cup of coffee, the stack of paper, and I'll go through my six stages that I've been taught. And what I'll do is I'll just go through those six stages, and I just scribble on the sheets of paper, going through each stage as I go. After about an hour of doing that, I then scan in my work, send it across by email to the person that's running the project, They'll then come back to me and tell me if they want me to look at something else or go more in depth, or they'll then at that stage thank me for it, and they'll send me that sheet of paper that they originally did with the coordinate number on it, the feedback photo or information, and say, here you are, well done, or you missed, or thank you very much. I'll tell you what, before we break for the hour, you have a website called remoteviewed.com. Give our listeners a little plug for it. Okay, yeah, it's it's... As you said, remoteview.com, it has lots of my session work on there for, for past targets that I've done, including predictive targets. It has an entire history of remote viewing and all the people involved and all the ministry unit. And it has thousands of pages of Freedom of Information Act documents from the CIA that backs up remote viewing's accuracy what can, and what can be achieved. Well, we'll see what else can be achieved on the other side of the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with Dow Smith, and we're talking about remote viewing. Now, one of the things that supposedly you're supposedly able, you're to, able do to do with remote viewing is obviously see something in another location, but I gather from what you're saying it's not photographically, photographically. correct. And that might be a problem, especially if you're trying to do spying. You want to see what the enemy is doing. Enemy is, so absolutely. where are the values? Where does remote viewing work best? I mean, remote viewing, as, you, as we've discussed, was, was made for the military to use for, for spying. But at the time it was created, it was never meant, and it's still never meant to be used as your primary or only source of information. It's only, it's only a backup tool to use, you know, when you can't get your information by any other means. I would never say to any of my clients or anyone, rely on my information above all others. It has to be used with all available information only. So when you do remote reviewing projects, let's say for the police, do you have some kind of paperwork where you indemnify yourself? In other words, where you legally protect yourself in case your findings are not accurate or sends them down the wrong path? that they can't come after you legally. I do for uh, my company website and for the free clients that I've worked with. But all my work for the police are done through a group in the U.S. called Find Me, um, and they only work with the police. And the police, I guess, only come to us as a last resort. So I think they, you know, I think they're pretty up on on knowing what what they're going to get from us. And Find Me groups all run by. The head guy Kelly, who's an ex-police officer himself. All I am is a, essentially a tool providing information to Kelly, who project manages it because he, he essentially runs and owns Find Me, and he you know, he's an ex-police officer himself, so he knows how to talk and liaise with the police officers. I don't think it's needed there, or maybe Kelly has it in place. It's I'm not in the loop, as they say, on on any that. Uh, you know, on some of the projects I work, I'm just there as a person providing information, and that and that's it really. On the ones that I do myself, as I said, work on my own clients. Yes, I do tell them that, and I and I tell them over and over again. You know, I make it absolutely clear that they should not rely on our information. It's not 100% accurate. It should only be used with other available information. So and that makes sense. You know, in the United States, we we have a very litigious society, so there's always a concern about protecting oneself legally. Um, I want to go back to something you said before, though, and you're going to laugh when I ask you this question, Daz. Uh, you said when you when you when you start to do the process of remote viewing, uh, you know, you, you clear your mind and you have your your cup of coffee. Would that be decaffeinated coffee or regular coffee? Well, it, it depends who you ask. Certain remote viewers think it matters. I personally don't. I don't think you should put any objects in the way of, you know, your ability and what you do. They're, they're, the remote viewing fields, um, it's very strange, as all, all psychic paranormal fields are, I guess. It has people that believe, you know, there are people, you know, there are remote viewers or psychics out there or people that believe, for example, you can't make money with your skills. 
and there are others that believe that you can't look into the future and there are others you believe you should never look into the mind of someone um, whatever you bring to the table so whatever you believe inside yourself will affect you so you know if you believe that you should only drink decaf coffee then I guess you should only drink decaf coffee but what I'm asking is do you think that uh, in your case that caffeine as a stimulant is assisting your perception mm. I don't know. I've never experimented with, with that possibility because I don't always have coffee. You know, sometimes I'll sit down with a, with a glass of water. I just like to have something because it, you know, it can go on for me for an hour and a half. So it's yeah. nice to have it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand that. I just, you know, whenever we talk about anything that involves psychic potential, you know, certainly, I, I think it's relevant to to just be cognizant of what one is feeding the uh, biomechanic, the, the bioelectrical computer. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you have a stimulant, obviously, I would think that that for some people might be an assist. For other people, it could be seen as a drawback. And again, I'm sort of trying to, I think we're trying to establish here this idea of, of some sort of standardized protocol, which may or may not be feasible. But certainly, if you're talking about a field where you're saying that this is something you can train people in, then I would absolutely expect there to be certain types of standardized protocols. And, you know, for something like the cons consumption of stimulants, um, I would expect someone who is teaching remote viewing to have a stance on that. Um, you know what I'm saying? Because I think that's relevant in terms of certainly uh, perception. Yeah, yeah. Um, go, when you actually go through training, uh, they advise you not to drink anything other than water when you're remote viewing. Um, okay. I think it, you know. I think it's it's personal to each person. They they can do as they want. But yeah, you know, there are schools of thought in both directions that it affects or it hinders remote viewing. I don't know. I don't think enough testing has been done to prove either way, or it may just be personal to each person because it seems to be the whole process of being psychic and remote viewing does seem to be very very personalized towards each individual, which is why it's also so hard to nail down a hundred percent in a lab. All right, so. You've got this situation where essentially what you're doing, and in the process of describing um, working with paper, I think for some of our listeners that almost sounds like automatic writing. It, do you, is it what you're doing comparable to that in any way, do you think? No, no. I mean, you don't, I, I guess you, you could remote view, and there are ways to remote view without paper. It's just that it's, a, it's, a, it's just an easy mechanism to record your you know your your faults your actions your sketches and then to transfer them or give them to someone else you know you could you could probably do it just as easy without paper and describe it all on on a video camera for someone it's just it's, it's an easy method to you know and it, bear in mind this comes from you know the 70s and 80s for the military it was just an easy way to transfer their faults easily between one part of the military to another okay so there's nothing inherently uh, beneficial about that particular approach no I don't think so uh, it's just a, yeah it's just an easy way to you know to share your information bear in mind you know when you go to stage six of, of CRV uh, the remote viewer can then if they if they feel it necessary or if they want to they can get out modeling Calais and they can actually model you know the target in in, in full 3d not many do that nowadays but it, it has been done and I've done it a few times myself all right, so here's another question that some people might think is a little goofy, but I have a reason for asking it. Is it only remote viewing, or is there remote smelling? Well, the, the thing about remote viewing is, and, and why 
I prefer it over all the other classical psychic techniques is that the other classical psychic techniques only tend to concentrate on one sense. So, you know, with clairaudience, you have a, a person who claims that they can hear voices from, from dead people and stuff in their head, but they won't, you know, they won't be able to see anything else. Whereas remote viewing, every sense is in play. So within, when I go to a target site, I can say to myself, okay, what does this target smell like? And I write down what it smells like. I can say okay. to myself, what does it taste like? What does it feel like? You know, if I put my hand into the center of it, what would I feel? Would, I, would it feel hot or cold? Anything that's available to my normal six senses and more is available to me in remote viewing. I'm in control. All right, well, no, I think that's an important distinction, though, because I think when people think of remote viewing, they think of just visualization. And, and I was going to ask a follow-up question to that, which is that, um, you know, in, in an area of science called machine vision, the reason I ask that question does, and, and I think you just made an important uh, a, a clarification, that remote viewing is not only sight, you're stating that it's, it's all the senses, and I think that's something that a lot of people may not automatically understand. And again, I think it's important to qualify here that, uh, for people new to this topic, we can't assume they know anything about it. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So there's a, a realm of uh, image processing called machine vision. And in machine vision, where you have things like um, manufacturing line robots, um, any any software that, that drives one of those robots is basically designed to do something called edge detection. And there's a specific uh, image processing algorithm called the Sobel edge operator. The idea being that for a, a manufacturing industrial robot, the edges of an object that a robot's going to grasp are much more important than any kind of internal detail. In, in the concept or in the process, I guess, of remote viewing, is there an idea that one starts with, let's call them meta levels of detail, like the big shapes of things, and then gradually hones down in? So, so, so when you try to visualize something, do you try to visualize the, the overall scale and sense of it and then sort of narrow down from that, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, remote viewing using the CRV process works in exactly that way. Stage one is what we call the, the ideogram stage, and what we do with that is when we get our coordinate, which is, again, is a random number, we write that on a sheet of paper, and then we place our we place the pen on the paper and allow our hand to move in some kind of strange kind of like sketch which we call an ideogram. And then we probe that ideogram. You know, we ask it, you know, is this hard, is it soft, is this a structure and so forth. And we get what we call gestile information about the target. And that, that's all stage one comprises of is very basic information about the target. So we may find out that the target's land or it's water, or, or it's a structure, or there are people there. And anything other than really basic stuff like that isn't allowed in stage one. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. 
My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're talking to Don Smith. He has practiced engaging remote viewing. And you raised a question earlier in the episode I wanted to touch back on before... David contributes his wisdom to this. And that is, you mentioned that as you're given assignments, the people who give you the assignments are looking or working with photographs or other evidence of the target. The question being, hey there, man, is it possible that you're not remote viewing, you're just seeing, you might be doing something else psychically, which is to see what they're seeing? It's possible but if for example the the person that's tasking me the information only has a photograph and i then give them six sheets of paper which describes textures temperatures and areas that can't be seen in the photograph but you know that they know is actually at the target then i'm actually getting the information from somewhere other than them okay so it's not something that's stuck in your mind from that particular day that you just brought once you were in a relaxed state once you were at your home, you're playing the music, you're having the coffee or not? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, you know, and and some of the time, you know, we're, we're working with targets that don't have photograph that is, is, you know, is feedback information, especially with things like missing people cases. You know, you just told it's the name of a person and, and so forth. All right, well, that was one thing to ask. Now, going back yeah. to the original CIA experimentation that interests me, was it their hope when they engaged in this that they could see a target as if there was a TV camera sitting there? Did they hope for a greater level of resolution than remote viewers can really achieve in practice? I think that's why the program went on for 20 years. I think they really did strive to attain um, more advanced levels. I don't think that's still been achieved. I think it's... It, it, removing is very hard to pin down I think it does, you know, there are elements of it that do depend on the natural ability of the person involved but yes, they did try uh, and, and better the removing techniques and the method that Ingo Swan came up with, that he actually you know, pretty much sold to the military does make the process of remote viewing in my opinion, a, a lot more better than someone just trying to do it naturally without any six-stage process to go through. But nothing has been solidly confirmed, you know, in in the lab or in operations on that today. Okay, so it's still a certain level of imprecision. So, what do you think are the purposes that remote viewing works best for? If it's not going to provide an actual video camera-like image, what do you use it for? 
it's as I said earlier, it's, it's really only. I mean, the types of targets could be anything. Uh, you know, it could be structures, events, past stuff. It's it does work best on past and present stuff. It gets it gets less accurate on predictive stuff, trying to predict things that are going to happen in the future. Um, but anything could be a you know a valid target and work well if the, if all the conditions are right. Okay, and, but I'm not thinking so much of the target in sense of past or present, but what kind of target that you use? What do you want to see? Do you want to see the location of a secret weapons laboratory doing weapons of mass destruction underneath the ground in Iraq or Iran or in Russia or Georgia or whatever? Do you want to see where Bin Laden really is? Where is he hiding? Let's find out. Let's get the remote viewers to go after him. What can you expect to see? I mean, in, in my 13-plus years of doing targets, they've been... The whole gamma has been pretty much anything. You know, it can be as mundane as looking for someone's lost purse to, you know, trying to find missing people or dead people to, or, or looking, you know, trying to confirm things on other planets and stuff. You know, the whole gamma is there. You know, remote viewing can, if, if you have other feedback sources and other information, it can be used to look at pretty much anything within the universe, I would have thought. Okay, but we're not getting 100% accuracy. We're getting what? Occasionally no, we get 100% accuracy. Most often it's what? 70% accuracy when it works but what, well? But there is no intelligence method out there that you get 100% accuracy with. Well, yeah, you no, do I, if you have a spy there and he's taking no, pictures. No, Gene, no, that's, I, that's okay. not 100% accurate. No, you, you have to assume that 100% accuracy is an avatar. You're never going to actually reach that. It's like kind of like the notion of 100% efficiency in any system. Okay, but we're talking about levels of accuracy. The spy, if a spy is on the scene and he's reporting to you with a mobile phone or whatever, even if it's not 100%, maybe it's 90%. It's something that yeah. you have a fairly right. high level of credibility. But when it okay. comes to remote viewing and you're not on the scene, you're seeing it from a remote location, maybe you get 60 or 70%, and very seldom do you get that 90% level. Bear in mind as well that remote viewing we have found over the years also works best when you use multiple remote viewers on any one project so uh, you know you, you would have a team of five remote viewers all looking at the same target maybe and you would know from working with these remote viewers for a number of years and seeing their database records that you know you'd know that you know i for example are very good at structures and life forms but i'm not very good over the last 13 years on, on water targets. So, you, you know, you would take the information I and the others provide, then you would look at what the, we as remote viewers are good at over our, our history, and then you would factor all that in place as well. So you can, over a period of time, say, you know, you know, Daz is, is normally 70% accurate on the remote viewing of structured objects that we do, and this is the structure, and he seems to be telling us exactly the same as what these other four remote viewers are, are saying, and they're usually 60-70% accurate as well. You base that then with other information you have coming from other sources, and you can get a generalized picture of the target. Okay, you're taking a consensus then of all the information that you get. You put it together and you say, okay, this person who is very good at shapes is telling us this. This person who's good at people is telling us that. And by yes. adding the information and subtracting the stuff that maybe isn't as good, you can come up with this report, a consensus once again of what's going on in the remote or target location. 
Yes, remote viewing is not a magic bullet. It will, you know, it, it, it's just not. And anyone that says it is is lying. It can be very accurate, but it can also be inaccurate. You, you know, you have to hedge your bets. You have to look at the the background, the history of the people doing the remote viewing, what they usually get, and, and you know, the target itself. Well, you know, Gene, I just want to point out that what you were just describing, right, is probably an accurate way to describe any kind of intel gathering operation. Oh, I would assume. I think right. the point that I was trying to make here is just trying to establish the level of accuracy of remote viewing and where it fits in with the entire picture. Certainly, if remote viewing, if you get different aspects of it, I could see where it can potentially give you a lot of information that might be sufficiently solid. But then again, the CIA did give it up, so who knows? Or maybe they didn't give it up. It's in black budget now. It's in Area 51. I'm not being <laughs> completely unserious here. I mean, there are rumors. The guy, the father of remote viewing, Ingo Swan, he trains the military remote viewers, and that's all documented. Um, and he, he's also stated in books and in a couple of interviews that he also trained a secondary unit of remote viewers that never met the first unit, and that he never knew their names or anything. They were, he said they were particularly good, they were particularly professional, and once he trained them, they disappeared and he never saw them again. And this was for an, an intel agency, but he didn't say which one. When did that supposedly happen? That happened, I think, in the early 80s. Hmm. They just disappeared. No one knows you know, who they were or where they went. Right. In recent years, has he, how vocal has he been about that topic or other related topics? Ingo still um, talks generally uh, at the conferences like the International Remote Viewing Association conferences he's, he's give quite a good you know, lectures there year after year I think he's slowed down a bit now because of his age and stuff he hasn't really gone in depth into any of that information about that second unity train because he does keep he does keep very to his word of you know of, of his non-disclosure agreements and all his secrecy files that he that he signed so I'm going to now uh, be a little psychic and say that even though this show hasn't aired yet, as it airs and as our listeners are hearing these words, they're going to be thinking the following. They're going to be thinking, David, ask Daz if he'd be willing to conduct an experiment with Gene and you and maybe even some key people in the Paracast listening audience so that we can, in a first-hand way, have an example of some of Daz's capabilities. Again, I'm, I'm looking into the future and I'm hearing their minds think this even before I, I ask this of you now, which is at the time they're hearing this in the past. So with that psychic ability that I'm displaying at, the, at this moment, what do you think? Would you be willing to work on an experiment with us where you can demonstrate to us how this works? Yeah, I mean, if we can work out an experiment with protocols that we both agree with, Mm -hmm. then I don't see any reason why not. And I might even be able to get, a few, you know, a few other remote viewers to join in because, you know, obviously, you know, I, I need to be as blind to the entire process as possible. So I can't, I can't, you know, know, know what's going on and stuff. So, we, yeah, we need to work out the, the physicalities as how we can do that. But, yeah, I'm more, I'm more than happy to. Yeah, I mean, okay. the, the climate change project I talked about on your forum I did last year for people. I did that entire project, all 12 targets, months before the targets had even been chosen by a random process. All right, so don't assume that everybody listens to the shows on the forums. Describe that project that you worked on, please. Okay, it was a, 
a man called Courtney Brown from a remote viewing method called SRV um, run, runs on an online website called the Farsight Institute and he wanted to run an experiment between all the different methods of remote viewing because there are a few out there to try to get everyone to work together as a community for the first time to see if the different schools of remote viewing could look at places in the future to see if we could I don't know, determine any any dramatic climate change or any climate change problems of some kind. Mm-hmm. So he devised an experiment, and it's very it's very complex and in depth. And I have to be honest, you know, I'm not a scientifically trained person, um, but all the details are, are, are completely on his website and in public for people to to have a look at. But they they devised a structure as such that we, the remote viewers, were going to do a minimum of twelve targets. Four of those were going to be targets that are set. I think in 2008, I think it was, which were what they call control targets to see, you know to generally have a look at the, the remote viewers' accuracy to see if they were on. The other the other eight targets were going to be targets looking at things sometime in the future to see what the climate will be like. So all the remote viewers involved, I think there were something like 12 of us in the end for, from three or four different schools of remote viewing. We all did our 12 at least 12 targets in advance up front, and they were all put online on the internet. And then a couple of months later, from the target pool of a thousand targets, the twelve were chosen, but by by a random process of something happening with stocks and shares, I can't remember exactly what it was. You'll have to again have a look online. But this random event then determined which twelve numbers out of those one thousand targets would be chosen, and those targets then were then looked at against the ones that we did as remote viewers to to see what the effects were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all I can say at this point is the four control targets that I did for that experiment were judged by two people to be pretty much perfect hits. I don't know what happened with the eight climate change ones that I did. I think because there's so much data that they're still looking into, into all that now, uh, I can't tell you what happened with that. What was this fellow's name again? Just once more? His name's Courtney Brown. Okay. And the website's the Farsight Institute. As I said, it was all done in public. All the remote viewing sessions were all posted online. The procedures, the protocol was all posted online before before it actually happened, before they chose which targets. So essentially, it's a strange paradox for us because we as remote viewers did our remote viewing sessions on targets that weren't even chosen for two months and were then chosen by a completely random process out of a thousand targets. Yet still, on the four control targets, uh, I managed to get a near-perfect accuracy. We're talking here of a site called, on the Farsight Institute, farsight.org, right? Um, I believe that is the address, yes. Okay, because I'm looking, they apparently have conferences periodically around the world with regard to remote viewing. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card 
or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Danny. You never know what's going to happen next. We're having a conference two hours worth with Daz Smith, who is a member, by the way, of the Paracast forums. And we were interested in what he claimed about his psychic abilities and knowledge. And we said, Daz, would you like to come on? And he said, yes. Do you feel at this point that you are happy with that decision or do you regret it? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm fine. I mean, you know. I'm completely honest with this. I can I can truly see how some people be truly skeptical of this because, you know, we are making some pretty amazing claims here by saying that you know I can sit down at a table with a pen and, and a stack of paper and see anywhere in time and space. You know that that's a pretty amazing claim and pretty amazing claims need pretty amazing evidence. I'm trying as far as, far as I can and as as well as I can to get that evidence out of people. I can't. I can't satisfy everyone, and I'm going as fast as I can with that. But you know, I'll try as, as best as I can in any way to help anyone see that this is this is genuine, and we can all do this. Now, at this point in time that you're doing this work on remote viewing, what about your parents? Well, I mean, yeah, bear in mind I'm 39 now, so I don't, <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time with my parents. My mother still does the old psychic bits and pieces as and when she can um, she's, she has disabilities so she has to cope with that in life as well my father has never never had any any interest in any of this psychic stuff at all so we just don't you know we just have a normal relationship where we don't discuss it and how do they feel about your involvement in this overall at this point in time how does your mother feel about it my mother is I think I think she's happy I think she's you know I think there's a, a little bit of proudness there you know especially as I keep her informed of you know what the projects I'm doing and, and where I'm going with things, and as as I posted to your board recently, you know I posted some results or, or feedback on a missing person case from from one of the, the the police states that we did, and you know the police inspector and one the police chief in charge actually confirms that the GPS coordinate we gave him as a, as, a, as a group of psychics for where a missing person was that they were looking for three months that we were a hundred feet away from where they found the body you know so it's good to get feedback like that and I think she's proud that you know you know I'm using my skill to, to help people and and not in a bad way because I'm, I'm not you know I'm not doing anything whereas I'm you know like some psychics out there where they're fleecing people for for what they're worth. You're not doing the Sylvia Brown gag. I'd rather not mention any names. All I, all I can say is, you know, I, as I said to you guys, I've trained in clairvoyance, I've trained in mediumship. I can see from from the years that I trained in all that stuff and the years that I went to a spiritualist church watching people up on the stage that it's very easy for someone to think they're getting psychic information when all they're doing is reading people. Yeah, no, you didn't have to name names. I'm happy to do that. Oh. <laughs> as my role as troublemaker of the year. Um, Actually, he's one of the most famous troublemakers on the planet. Yeah, apparently, in, in a few <laughs> different sandboxes. <laughs> but now, let me ask you a question about that, Daz. You brought up that one uh, case, that missing persons case. Um, so here's a question for you. In, in working on that, did you read any of the police report information at all? Was what you did completely cold? What I did is completely blind on that. My wife 
works is my project manager on on the missing person cases. So, so it comes into an email box. I don't get to see it. She then writes, as I said before, you know, she does that sheet of paper, seals it up for me, and gives me a number. And all I get is this random number. I then go and do my stuff, submit my report, then fill in a form to the the head of the Find Me group where I do most of my missing person work. So I fill in an online form detailing, you know, I think the person's deceased or alive or where they, where I think they are, where I think the perpetrators are, all that kind of stuff. Then, after that's all been confirmed that that's been received, I then get a, a file from the project manager who then says, you know, this is what you were looking at, what, what you know, because because remote viewers always need feedback. You need feedback to have a look at your data yourself, you know, to to also teach yourself, you know, on bits you might be going right or wrong on. It also clues, you know, it's like an information loop. It closes the information loop to have feedback. I can't say that's how all the other find me group psychics work or any other psychics or remote viewers, but I always try to do everything that I do blind and not know any anything about the target at all up front. Okay, so you've helped law enforcement authorities try to find missing people, etc., etc. Are there situations where you just were totally wrong? You said, well, this particular person is here. Here's the longitude and latitude or whatever, and you were way, way off. Most, I, I don't know, because I don't get feedback on a lot of the cases. I would say that, I have to be honest and say, yes, that probably happens. On anything that I don't feel secure about in myself... I do say I do say to the people that run the Find Me group or other projects I work, I'm not confident in my information. I'll, here it is, but here's my confidence level on it, and it's pretty low. What percentage of the time do you say that? On the find on the missing person cases, I would say it's it's a hard one to say, but I would say probably about ten percent. Okay. Because it's just. It's just such an extreme thing to do, looking for missing people. But that means that 90% of the time you think you've got something that you have confidence in? Yes, I do. Well, see, I could get, I could see this getting very complicated. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, you're giving a missing person's case, and, uh, and just for sake of argument, that person you visualize as being located in Mexico City, which is an incredibly large, sprawling metropolis with... I think it's like, what, 18 million people, some insanely large number of people. And a lot of the city really sort of looks the same. Um, yes. It's Right? So so how do you deal? Let's assume for a moment you have genuine abilities. Yes. How, okay. How do you, how, okay. Um, which I know, even as I say that, I can, and again, as I said that, even though this show hasn't aired, I can already visualize in my mind certain members of the audience going, David, stop it. You're going too easy on this guy. But the, the truth of the matter is that this is a fascinating topic. And and I have to tell you, Daz, um, one of the reasons that I, I said to Gene, you know, we should, we should interview you and, and that I wanted to pursue you to do this was that I guess it was like a year or two ago finding out that someone who we respect quite a bit, Jacques Vallée, the well-known UFO researcher, Vallée had demonstrated a large degree of interest in, in this topic. I mean, he, I found it to be fascinating. What do you know about his interest in this topic? Well, I know that he actually trained for a while at SRI. He actually went to SRI labs and did a small amount of training, and I think he may have even participated some money at some point in the 70s. Hmm. So, n not that I, I would gauge the world based on Valet's interest, but the fact that someone of his particular approach found this to be compelling yep. is, a, is a primary reason I'm compelled 
into looking at yeah. this. And um, uh, the now deceased uh, uh, Michael Crichton, I know he trained in remote viewing as well. Oh, really? Yeah, he he took he paid for and took some remote viewing training a few years back. Hmm. I think he was looking for story ideas, though. I don't know that he was looking for any. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> but, but going back to your question uh, about you know the missing Pearson work, and right. I can understand people being skeptical. But and it, it's something that I've had to learn to, to to work hard at working with with the police on these kind of cases is the problem of remote viewing from the standpoint of being trained in what I did, which was CRV, is we're taught uh, within the protocols of CRV to describe, don't identify. So we have to try through the entire process of what we're doing, not to actually say what we think the target is, just to describe it in as many ways as possible. Which, of course, is very hard and not very valuable, you know, if, if as you said in your example, you're trying to find a person in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. I've had to learn over the 18 months of working with the police is a whole new way to change what I do with remote viewing uh, to what the police need. And we, in all the cases we work for the police, they ask for and we supply GPS coordinates of where we think that missing person is. And on that feedback I put on your forum from the police chief, he actually states, we found the person within 100 p- feet of your GPS coordinates. Hmm. So, and they were, looking for, they were looking for three months prior to that and had no success. Hmm. So here's a question for you, and this is actually going to dovetail into a, a follow-up question that I really I wanted to ask you a little while ago, where you gave the police GPS coordinates. It seems kind of an interesting way to provide information. So two-part question, part A, how do you come up with GPS numbers? Part B, is there any kind of technological assist that you deploy to this that increases your hit rate? Okay, the first part of the question um I can't. I can't say how all the other people do it because there are there. You know, within the group that I work with, find me there are lots of different remote viewers and psychics. Myself, how I give my GPS coordinate. I look at. I, I do my remote viewing session, and then I sit down and I try. You know, and I look at the information. I you know, I obviously look to see if it mentions any location names like Mexico and town names that kind of thing. If it does, I'll then go on to Google uh, something like Google Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking my information, you know, and if I say if I mention say Mexico City in my session, I'll then look at Mexico City from above and Google Earth. I'll then refer back to my remote viewing session and say, okay, well, I think I can see a a massive square structure with a huge dome roof next to a forest or something. So then I'll take my remote viewing information and try to find that on a map, and then I'll try, you know, I try to match my data against. The, da- the data I find in Google Earth. I know other remote viewers and psychics within the group actually douse maps and, and try to find locations that way. Mm-hmm. I don't like to work that way because it doesn't work for me. So all I do is try to match my psychic data with real location data that seems to matches and then give a GPS coordinate. All right. So second, second part of the question, technological assist. I don't use anything... At the, at the moment, I mean, I, I can see in the future things like virtual reality. If I, you know, if you, if I could have a, a virtual reality program, whereas I could just say square and it draws squares for me on the screen, and I can say no, I need it bigger and all this kind of stuff. I could see how a program like that would allow me to envision the things I'm seeing in my head about the target a lot better. But I don't think that exists right now. Okay, and I guess where I was going with this was even more satiric than that. Um, if in in any of the research that you're involved in, if anybody has experimented with, for example, 
the radio equivalent of a sideband amplifier, a way to, to perhaps um, amplify psi abilities so that you can use some sort of, uh, I don't even know if this is feasible or not, um, but uh, a way to sort of focus attention with some sort of a technological assist, perhaps predictable or, or unpredictable. I, I, here, I'll just throw this right out. Do you know of any remote viewers that use things like crystals? And by the way, I just heard, again, in my psychic abilities, I heard 22 and a half Paracast listeners who are going to be listening to this show just sigh, as I said, yep. crystals. Sigh or groan? <laughs> oh, perhaps. I think I think Tommy Allison did both. both. I think I, Tommy Allison went down to have a chocolate to kind of forget. <laughs> I, could I don't know any remote viewers that would would use crystals or anything like that. The most esoteric they'd get is that as they call down or as they're doing the remote viewing, they may listen to some kind of binaural beat music or or meditative music. That's about as far as it gets. You know, we try, or I try, with remote viewing, and there are fair, there are fair few others that try as well, to almost distance ourselves from what we class as the the kind of extreme psychic field. Because, as I said, you know, we have we have all these protocols in place. You know, we're blind to the target. You know, no one's allowed near us. Has to have feedback. We yeah, we tend to to stay away from all that stranger stuff. Yeah. Well, no, I. I can. I, I think we can both believe that. But I just want to throw an idea out to you, something to think about, and and this sort of might surprise some of the Paracast audience. But uh, I think there is some validity to the notion of a marriage, if you would, of um, what I'm going to throw into the big bucket of spirituality slash psychic phenomena and science and technology. And I think that. And again, this is going to really, I think, shock some of our audience, but I think that it makes a lot of sense to, to investigate how we can incorporate and take advantage of technology in areas where one might think that it's not feasible or not desirable. And, and again, this is sort of the idea of if you strip away the concern about any kind of a giggle factor, a curtain of laughter in talking about this, um, you might actually discover that, for example, in terms of psychic abilities, there, there might actually be certain types of technological innovations that that could perhaps assist in doing things like focusing the mind. And, and it's interesting how, how you, you brought up uh, binaural beats and you know sort of certain types of music that may introduce something like a, you know sort of a gam state in the brain. Um, or change, let's say, uh, uh, brain patterns and brain waveforms to more easily facilitate some sort of psychic activity. I, I think that's fascinating. And uh, I think that potentially, again, even though that I can understand where you know you would avoid, for example, even you know, bringing up the notion of crystals, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there is something to be studied there. And I'm just sort of just throwing that out to you as someone who has a reputation of being highly skeptical. I think there's a it's, lot we have yet to learn, you know? Absolutely. It's all possible. And you can, I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen, but there's, you know, there's over the last couple of months, there have been a fair few news articles about um, tools that are coming out of labs now where, you know, they can actually envisage on screens uh, what people are actually thinking about in their minds. And they can actually know what people are thinking about from the different parts of the brain that light up under EEGs and specific machines. 
So we are going in that direction. And there are even joysticks you can buy for your computer now, whereas they don't, you know, they're not physical. It's a, it's a, a net you wear on your head, and you can actually move the person around on the screen from your thoughts. So technology is moving in those directions. I don't, I don't know, you know, where the symbiosis will be, but it's clear that there will be some, there will be something like that in the future. I don't know how spiritual, but yes, it's um, technology is definitely catching up now. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Spiritual symbiosis on the Paracast with our guest Dad Smith. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point. And uh, again, we're recording this weeks before um, this actually airs. But this last weekend, I was watching an episode of 60 Minutes, a very popular U.S. Uh, news show, and there was a fascinating segment on replacement arms and legs for soldiers who have been uh, uh, severely disabled in, in, in battle. They've you know, lost their arms and legs. And there was one particular example of a fellow who, um, I guess, had lost his arm. I think it was in Afghanistan, and now he's a researcher. And he was showing this, uh, this technique by where they were using a combination of, um, of muscle electrodes on his stump of his arm and also some, uh, some brain electrodes to uh, have a computer uh, essentially reading that electrical information and controlling a robotic arm that uh, the reporter from 60 Minutes was holding in his hands. He had this robotic arm. He's talking to this guy, and this guy is sort of using the stump of his arm and his mind to move the hand in a way that is responding directly to the requests of the reporter. You know, you, you see something like that, and it really starts to break down your your notion of what's possible and what's not possible, because just even 10, 20 years ago, that would have been considered squarely in the realm of science fiction. You know, controlling a robotic arm with your mind, what are you talking about? And, and here the guy was doing it, and in a very predictable, very controlled way. So, again, you know, the Paracast has this reputation of being a, a very skeptical place, but I, I really think it's important that people understand that um, we're applying reasonable skepticism where I th we think it's really necessary, but at the same time, um, even though there are people who, who state that we claim to have all the answers, uh, I don't want people to perceive that at all. And as I said, Daz, I mean, there are people who are going to hear this episode. Tommy, I'm talking to you. And uh, 
you know, they're going to think, you know, why are these guys doing this? What, what, what you know, what, what's the deal here? And it's a simple recognition that there is this field of study that is not well understood and uh, uh, not to uh, to give you uh, any kind of crap over this episode, but it's even interesting to me that there are certain aspects of this that you yourself are, are sort of not claiming to have full knowledge of that I, I think is actually a positive thing because, uh, you know, even though you're you're talking about this with some authority uh i'm i'm guessing that you're not going to be someone who and, and actually i'm not guessing it you've actually said it that uh you know this is not 100 percent accurate this is uh, you're, you're you're being very cautious about how you position and qualify this field and i think in that sense uh you're making a, a you're you're making it you're helping us make a very good show because no one has any of the answers. And I think the fact that you stated that anybody who claims to be 100% accurate with this is someone you should immediately uh, have concerns about. I think it's good that you're saying that, and I think it's realistic. And it, to me, it actually lends credence to the idea that there maybe is something here. And that's why I proposed to you that we consider doing an experiment. I think if we were able to come away from this with, with a commitment to, to try this out, is it going to prove anything either way? And the answer is, well, I don't think so. But certainly, it's another uh, strong piece of uh, evidence, and it's another set of data points in an otherwise uh, imprecise study. Let me emphasize that, too, what David says, that even if we can make this experiment happen, and I hope we can, we're not going to assume that this is the make-it-or-break-it experiment for remote viewing. We won't no, assume that not. because right. it's been made clear, even the people who have the most responsible attitude about it, who claim it works, say it's not 100% accurate. So we are assuming that probably it'll have middling success at best. But that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're happy to try Abs- it. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to see if we can progress that. You know, I've stated from the start, we don't know how remote viewing works. And in fact, you know, the best scientists and the best intel and the best money of 20 million couldn't find in 20 years. They still could not find how remote viewing works. And to this day, no one knows. We have our theories, but no one knows. It's just one of those things. You know, I get on every day and I try to use it knowing that I don't know how it works. I just try to use it anyway. How do you well, use something if you don't know how it works, though? I mean, you know, it works because I can see the results of it. I just don't know how, how you know, I, we don't know what the carrier is for, for remote viewing. We don't know if there's a signal, if the, you know, or if there's, you know, we hear all these theories about it. It's, could it be EMF? Could it be radio theory? We, no one knows how it works. We can't work out how the person gets information from a remote site. We do see in theories like, quantum physics and the holographic universe that there are elements in that that constitute towards you know what what we class as being paranormal things happening that are or can be explained or can be parts of what happens within those theories and i do believe that you know it probably does lie along those lines that what we think is paranormal now in 10 20 years time we'll just think is a is a normal thing of, of holographic universe theory or something all right, so um, now I'm going to throw a real curveball at you because you said that the whole idea of remote viewing is um, is an ability to get a glimpse into other spaces and other times. Now let's increase the groan factor to 140 trillion decibels. Ready? <laughs> well, here, get ready for this. What about other dimensional constructs? 
Yes, well, I mean, again, it's a theory within remote viewing that the reason why we can't predictively remote view very accurately is because there, in in the future, there are different alternate realities, and you know, uh, by us coming up with a conclusion and then giving it to someone, it then changes that reality to another one. It's it's a complex subject that's been looked at, as I said for 20 years by the top scientists for 20 million and no one's come up with an answer yet but there are people you know right now looking at are we looking into multiple universes multiple dimensions we you know I'm just being honest we don't know who in the field is doing research into the specifics of how this works is there anybody who has actually taken on that responsibility or that challenge because you said you don't really understand how this works but I think, again, for, for many people, they're going to say, well, how can you make any progress with this if you don't understand it, how it works? And I'll give you a, a, a good analogy here. It's the idea of someone who drives a car who says, I don't know how the engine works, but I know what the results are. I get from A to B, but now I'm going to become a more efficient driver, and I'm going to figure out better ways to get from A to B. And, and, and so some people might say, well... You know, don't you really need to have an understanding of how your car works so you can know what its limits are, so you can figure out what alternate routes the car might be able to handle? Yeah. I mean, over 13 years of me using this tool, I've, I, you know, I know how it works with me as a person, but I can't, you know, I couldn't sit down and say to you, okay, this is, this is you know, the theory of remote viewing uh, in two lines. You know, this, well, you this know is how exactly to access how it, it. You know how to access yes. it, but you don't know the mechanism that you're accessing. You know, you know, for example, that if you go into the car and you push the ignition button or use the key or whatever they do yes. nowadays. And I know what that's going to do for me. Well, you and know what it'll do, but you may know nothing about whether that particular engine, it could be the regular engine, it could be the Mazda RX-8 with the Fankel engine, it could be a diesel engine. You don't know maybe the mechanism by which that engine runs, but you know what the result is. Absolutely. And we're still on, across the board, I would say we're still there with remote viewing, you know, we kind of, we kind of know certain, you know, we know little bits about certain things that do and don't work. Like we know that targets that are extremely good for viewers are targets that have a lot of change. You know, okay. we know Could that. you clarify that a little bit? Targets that have a lot of change? They, yeah, they uh, seem so. to have a lot of, a lot of change, a lot of motion, um, a lot of entropy. Whereas, yeah, that seems counterintuitive. Uh, I know, but. All I, can, all I can tell you is, you know, from from the research that comes out of this program and, you know, the documents on the, about this, you know, are in the CIA archives, they're on my website. You know, from hundreds and thousands of tests they did, they know that those targets are better than, than, than others. And, you know, we do know some of the small peculiarities of how remote viewing works, but the big overview, we still really don't know. As I said, I think it's probably in quantum physics somewhere, but we well, don't really know right now. Okay, let's rewind for a minute. Uh, give us two examples of two different targets, one with lots of change and one that's not exhibiting lots of change. Okay, um, something like the first test of the A-bomb, that would be a particularly good and easy target for a remote viewer to do. Remote viewing, I don't know, a, a milk bottle on the table in your kitchen would be a particularly bad target for a remote viewer to do. Hmm. Because, no, let me, because let me, you know, the milk bottle on your table in your kitchen, there's not really much happening. 
you know, it's a small thing. There's there's no movement around it. And there's there's no emotional factor for humans or anything. But something big and brash and moving and wide scale like like a, an A bomb test would, you know, it's, it's an easy target. Along those lines, Des, are you sen- then saying that it would be easier for a remote viewer to find a living human versus a dead human? Oh, I don't know if anyone's done any tests on that. Um, funnily, I think I found through my uh, missing people work, I think I've had, you know, from the feedback I've got anyway, which is very limited, uh, I find more dead people than living people. But well, that's yeah. that's because, you know, I'm so far removed from the original source of the information, it's hard to get any kind of feedback at all. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if anything's definitive has been, been said on that one. I couldn't, I couldn't say. Yeah. It, would need, it would need work, but... Well, yeah. following along with the logic that you posit, I mean, that would that would sort of lead from that. I mean, a human being is displaying emotion, has energy output, um, is moving around as a dynamic entity versus a dead human. Well, it de- I guess it depends where they are. You know, a, a dead person might be in a river that's, you know, going over rapids, and it might be in a river that's not by the side of a town, you know, like New York or something, so which might have a more of a, a physical kind of attraction than... You know, a live person in a you know in a barn dance in Idaho or something. You know, it's <laughs> you know what I'm saying. They're, you know, there are all kinds of physical attractors that that remote viewers hone in on. But yeah, I mean, I'm just picking up. You know, one report from SRI states that targets with high entropy are the ones that seem to be the best ones for remote viewers to do. I guess it almost sounds like targets that have more of an effect on. Uh, the quantum field, as it were. That's that's one of the theories, yes. And you know, it does. It, they they did in the last few years of the official uh, program looking into remote viewing. They were quite heavily looking into quantum field and quantum physics and string theory, holographic theory, all that kind of stuff is possible and potential sources of where we get remote viewing information. Because as a remote viewer, you see, I'm sat here. And I know I have to access the target, but I know I'm not actually going to the target, if you know what I mean. I can sit mm-hmm. here and I and I, I know I can access information about what that target is, but I personally know for, in my mind that I'm not going there in any way. I just, I'm just reaching out almost like and just touching the air around me and I know what that target is meant to feel like or what it's meant to smell like. Which I follows- just thought when you said that it's like reaching out and touching somebody. <laughs> You know, the reason we're coming in here is we're just about out of time, and it would be nice if you just told our listeners, where can they get a hold of you if they have more information? Other, of course, than the Paracast forums at forum.theparacast.com, where we're pleased to have you as a regular does. But if they want to write to you directly or go to your site, where do they go? Yeah, if you want to get hold of me, uh, my, my main remote viewing website is called www.remoteview.com. Other than that, as you said, you know, I'll hang around your forum, and if anyone's got any questions, you know, we can address them there. I've got no problems in, in trying to talk on this as much as possible and, and being as honest as possible. We appreciate that, Daz. We really do. Um, because um, certainly, I'd say for Gene and myself, we know a lot more about UFOs than we do this stuff. Um, so uh, thank you for coming and spending the time with us and and perhaps enlightening us. I think there's still more questions than answers, but that seems to be the overall nature of life, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Doz Smith, we hope to hear more from you about working out that experiment. Meantime, thanks so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. 
No problems. Thank you very much. Thanks, Darcy. Hey, neighbors, you can now give us a tweet on Twitter. Check out the PowerCast at twitter.com slash thepowercast. That's twitter.com slash thepowercast. Follow us and maybe we'll follow you. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast. Thank you.